You're listening to Informed, informal chats about theological topics to help us know and understand God together. Informed. Informed. Hi everyone, welcome to Informed. Uh, Simeon here and I'm sat down today again with Dan Hayter. Hello Dan. Hello, good to be here. You've been on uh, Informed before, talking about atonement, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, so uh, just for those who don't know you, just remind us, where are you, what do you do, who are you? <laughs> who am I? So um, I'm, I'm Dan, I'm married to Bex, got two little girls, and um, I am based in Peterborough, part of the leadership team at Life Church. And so involved on that and in, um, uh, in, in various bits and bobs of, of teaching within the church. And I also help to, uh, to run the lead course for Relational Mission, which is um, <laughs> the kind of foundational leadership training course that we run as a family of churches. So, um, yeah, I really, really enjoy being part of that. Great. Um, I guess by the time this podcast goes out, we'll be able to say, and Luke and Beth Sears are now with you yes <laughs> uh, but i can't but because we're recording this before they've moved i can't like ask you oh and and how's it going with luke and beth there <laughs> it's going great they're brilliant they're fitting in wonderfully yes. <laughs> i'll say that in faith because because uh, they will i'm sure <laughs> and they will be fitting in wonderfully yeah yeah <laughs> so um i've got to know you through working together on um on help well i help you with the um the lead training course um and so I, when I was thinking about topics for uh, informed, I thought a good thing to talk about at some point would be the kingdom of God. And I thought you'd be a good person to talk uh, with it about. So the kingdom of God is a phrase that you will read a lot if you read the Synoptic Gospels. You'll hear it a lot if you hang around churches. But it's something that is like, I don't know whether it's fair to say it's notoriously difficult to define. Um, I think it's difficult to define uh, in in the scholarly world, the academics who study uh, Jesus, the, you know, the Gospels will come up with a variety of different definitions, what they think the kingdom is, quite different to each other. Um, and, it, and in church life, uh, you it's a word you often hear used, but if you sort of stop and ask, well, what does it actually mean? It's quite hard to pin down. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'd agree, definitely. Um, I mean, I think you're right, it's one of those slippery uh, slippery terms where you you kind of end up using phrases that involve the word kingdom um so you talk about things like kingdom living or kingdom lifestyle and then you sit down and you think what what do we actually mean by those things and so i think it does become quite a slippery um uh, quite a slippery term and um i think one that you're right is used in different ways by different groups of people and that that mm. really doesn't help clarify it and i think what you'll generally find is the disagreements amongst new testament scholars on what the word the expression kingdom of god means uh they will have a whole bunch of disagreements and that's very often they're talking about very different things to what we might be talking about when we talk about kingdom of god what other church traditions might be talking about so it yeah you're right it's notoriously slippery and so definitely worth thinking through to make sure we're in line with scripture on it so yeah, that's what we're going to try and do. The way we're trying to approach this, I suppose, today is just to try and get get shed a bit of light on how did Jesus, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use the word the kingdom? What was he meaning by it? What was he uh, referring to? To try and give us a bit of an anchor point for our language, so that we can make sure that um, yeah, it's, it's obviously really helpful if the way we use language is the same way that the Bible uses those words, because then we avoid a whole load of confusion. Um, but obviously language also 
points to concepts and ideas. And sometimes if we're slippery with our language, then we can end up thinking about things in not quite the way that scripture leads us to. But disclaimer that this is, you know, a a tricky area to pin down. So Dan and I will do our best to sort of shepherd in shepherd our thinking in a good direction but um <laughs> and we will not be held liable for any muddy thinking and i'm <laughs> it's a complex topic <laughs> it's complex and i'm sure i'm sure um there are more learned people than we are um so uh get us started dan what what, what is a what is a kingdom so that's yeah good good question i think yeah going back to basics is really really helpful so i think sometimes we when an expression gets a bit muddy um particularly when it's an expression that is actually used in lots of other contexts that aren't christian contexts in usually quite a clear way it's sometimes helpful to just take a step back and think what would what would happen if we removed the phrase of god from king from kingdom and I think if we remove of God, I think suddenly there's a whole load of baggage that is attached to that phrase that, that disappears and it becomes quite a simple concept. So I think very often when I'm trying to get people to think through what the kingdom of God is, I kind of take a step back and I say, well, what is a kingdom in the first place? And I think if you reduce it down um, in a very basic way, a, a kingdom, as the, the name suggests, involves a king. Um, and by implication a kingdom usually involves a people and usually a a territory over which that particular king reigns over that particular people and so suddenly just by taking a step back we've removed of god from it and all of the the baggage that gets attached to that and we realize that a just a kingdom is actually a, a pretty simple um idea i mean we talk about the the United Kingdom, obviously we have a queen rather than a king, but the word queendom doesn't exist as far as I know, but it's the, the same concept. You have one monarch who is in charge over a group of people within a particular territory. And so I think just the word kingdom itself, um, I think is, is actually a relatively simple term to define. Uh, now, just to throw something in, which feels like we might be complicating things, but I think it's important to, to bear in mind is that the word kingdom in English... Uh, by its very nature, implies a territory. And um, I, I think, like, you talk about the, the kingdom of whatever country, that usually implies there's a physical location. Uh, now, that is that is true of the word kingdom in, in Greek, which is the, the language the New Testament was written in. Um, but the word in Greek, basileia, can mean kingdom, but can also mean reign as well. So it, it, can, it can have this idea of this... Uh, kind of in a sense static thing a kingdom there's a a a king in control over a particular locality over a particular people but it can also carry the more active sense of reign Um, and it's not that one contradicts the other so it's not that we're reading the gospels and going ah therefore that means that there's no emphasis on territory no emphasis on land no emphasis on people whatsoever but it does just help us realize that there's there's also an an activity that's involved in in the word there's the idea of ruling or reigning so that that's sometimes quite helpful to just substitute the word reign from time to time when you're reading. So the kingdom of God, the reign of God, um, so that you're not just thinking in terms of a, um, a, a a territory, but that you're also thinking in terms of an activity of a king who is reigning. That's quite a helpful kind of uh, anchor point, isn't it? Whenever we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the kingship of God. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting to just kind of step back and sort of say, well, 
if you were going to just start from scratch and make a list, what kind of things does Jesus say about the kingdom? I think some of the things you'd find are he talks about, um, you know, the kingdom in terms of people starting to follow him, talks about the fact that there are uh, a lot of surprises about who is going to be in the kingdom and who's not going to be in the kingdom, particularly for his first century Jewish audience. He talks about the fact that it's going to grow gradually. It starts small, it gets bigger. He also talks about it as a future thing, um, that there's there's a coming a coming judgment um, when uh, that, that he connects with the kingdom. So um, there's probably more we could say, but just to kind of scope out the kind of thing we're talking about. And you see there, don't you, the, the classic thing that people say the kingdom is now and it's not yet. Do you think that's a fair kind of way of thinking about it? Yeah, I, I I think it is. So I think when you when you read um, the the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and uh, and Luke, um, so those three particularly, you do get this idea that there are certain times where Jesus talks about the kingdom as something that is already happening. Um, so he will say things such as repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, okay, that could carry the idea of the the fact that it's near. It's not here yet, but it's very close. Um, there's also places where he talks about it pretty much as already being there. So he uh, he talks about the idea of um, he's speaking with the Pharisees and and saying that if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is in your midst, is is among you. And so it's, it's there's this idea that the kingdom, the reign, the rule of God is already a present reality within the ministry of Jesus. But then there's also a, a future emphasis on the kingdom. So you get um uh, G- people talking to jesus about him coming into his kingdom um that that idea of well there's a uh, there's a moment where jesus is going to be enthroned as king and that's going to be in the future and so they're talking to him about the moment when that's going to happen um you get parables such as the parables of the uh, the sheep and the goats in matthew 25 which very much seems to have an an end time aspect to it, a final judgment um, kind of aspect. And so you you really do get a, a real mix of tenses when we're talking about the, the kingdom or the rule of God, which is why um, theologians have developed this this idea of the, the now and the not yet or the the uh, the, the the kingdom the kingdom here, the kingdom not yet, or the overlap of the ages is another way that it's sometimes phrased. Um, and I think that is something that you you do see within the language that Jesus uses. And so we then need to think through, okay, well, why is it that Jesus is using multiple tenses to talk about the kingdom? Um, because it feels like it muddies the waters a little bit, but actually getting our heads around that is actually central to understanding the world that we live in. If we don't understand um how jesus speaks of the kingdom in terms of is it already or not yet we're also going to end up struggling practically within our day-to-day lives to make sense of the experience that we have of following jesus um so yeah that's that's a completely appropriate way of thinking about it jesus uses multiple tenses and i think there's it's really interesting to think through why does he do that and what implications does that have for the way that we live day to day so in what way if we're thinking about um, well, let's anchor ourselves in the gospel. When Jesus is walking around um, in the first century saying the kingdom of God's at hand, in what way is it present and in what way is it not yet present? So let's let, so if we go backwards a little bit, just in terms of, uh, so Jesus is 
Jesus appears and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, um, in order to say something like that and expect people to listen to you, you need to be talking about something that they're going to be able to, that, that they know broadly what you're talking about. So the assumption when you're reading the Gospels is that Jesus is speaking about something that his hearers would have been familiar with as a concept. Um, but we also realise as he teaches on it that he's transforming the way that they may have thought about it or expected it. So if we backtrack a little bit and just kind of think what would his hearers have expected or what would his hearers have understood by the phrase the kingdom of God, that might then help us when we're thinking through well, what aspect of the kingdom is here, what aspect of the kingdom is not there. Um, so if you look at the Old Testament, the interesting thing is the phrase, the kingdom of God, as far as I know, I think the phrase, the kingdom of God doesn't actually appear. I think the kingdom of the Lord appears once, I think in, in Second Chronicles um, 13, but the phrase, the kingdom of God in those words, um, I don't think appears in the Old Testament. Um, and so we could think, oh gosh, Jesus is just introducing a completely brand new topic. There's um, nothing that is, like nothing of this is familiar to anyone. But actually, when you look at the Old Testament, you realise there's actually a lot of a lot of language and a lot of stuff in the background that is contributing towards what Jesus is then referring to. But so what you do get in the Old Testament is this understanding that um, one day God is going to be reigning as king over the nations. Now, there's obviously a sense in which he's always reigned as king over the nations, he's sovereign and so on. But it's very much thinking in terms of there is a day where all of the nations are going to acknowledge that the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, is king over the whole of creation. Um, and so there was this prophetic hope that one day the nations would acknowledge that. And, and in a very real sense, in the experience of Israel, uh, that they would come to see God as ruling and reigning as king, which for them would very much mean uh, that they would be delivered from their enemies, that they wouldn't experience oppression at the hands of their enemies anymore. Um, and a key part of what it does mean, and you can see this in a number of Old Testament texts, I think Psalm 2 uh, would be one example, Second Samuel 7 uh, would be one example. And in fact, the, the place where the, the phrase king, the kingdom of the Lord in Second Chronicles 13 appears also carries this, is the idea that the kingdom of God or the God reigning as king would involve there being a human king over, over Israel, um, on on God's behalf basically and that that would be a descendant of of David and so you yeah you read Psalms like Psalm 2 you read promises made to David in 2nd Samuel 7 that he would have an everlasting kingdom his descendants would always reign on the throne and you read 2nd Chronicles 13 and you realize that whilst the overarching idea is that God is God is the king he's the one who's reigning that he would express that particular rule through a human king who came to be known as the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And in, in the Old Testament, the kings of Israel were called anointed ones. And so there was this hope that one day there would be a descendant of David who would reign and rule. And so when Jesus then comes along and says the kingdom of God is at hand, that would have conjured up a whole load of stories and expectations amongst the Jewish listeners, amongst um, the Israelites who were listening to Jesus. And uh, one of the things that they would have presumably understood by that is the time is coming where a descendant of David is going to reign on the throne of Israel and would have authority over all of the nations. And that's what uh, I think that's what they would have expected to hear from Jesus. Um, and so then the question becomes, well, what's the in, in Jesus's teaching? What's the already aspect and what's the not yet 
um, aspect of it. And I think what we come to realize as we read through the Gospels is that Jesus is claiming to be that Davidic king. He's claiming to be the one who is going to rule and reign on the throne of David for uh, for the whole of eternity and over all of the nations. And that's um, that's something actually that within the New Testament itself, we see the early church confessing Jesus is Lord. In other words, Jesus has been enthroned at at the place where we would have expected the Messiah, the descendant of David, to be enthroned. So that aspect of the kingdom is already starting to come into place within the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is, um, so you get uh, moments such as uh, Mark 8, where the disciples suddenly realise you're the Messiah, you're the chosen one, you're the anointed one of God. And so confessing someone as the messiah goes hand in hand with the expectation that it's not going to be long before god is going to be seen as king over all of the nations now the surprising element though within this within the story of jesus is that jesus both acknowledges that he is the messiah and so in that sense you could say well the kingdom of god has already started because the messiah arriving goes hand in hand with god reigning and ruling as king but what we then get is an unexpected delay within the teaching of Jesus between the moment where the, the Messiah first appears and the moment where God is confessed as king over all nations. And that is this middle bit between the first coming of Jesus and the end, uh, the, 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 the moment where the kingdom of God is fully come, where God is confessed and acknowledged as king over all nations, we see that there's actually quite a a, a, well, a relatively lengthy period however long that is between the two and that's something that Jesus's hearers would not have expected and in all fairness to them you on a on a plain reading of the old testament you would probably not have expected it either you would have expected messiah arrives great Jesus is the messiah that means the romans are going to be destroyed and all of the nations are going to come and flow to jerusalem and god is going to reign as king in all fairness that's probably what you would have expected but Jesus transforms or reshapes Israel's expectations of what the kingdom of God would look like and says it will end up looking like God reigning as king over all the nations. It will end up looking like a descendant of David ruling on the throne with absolute authority over all of the nations. But there's a there's a chronological t distance between the moment where the Messiah arrives for the first time and the moment where that actually comes to pass. And that middle ground is what we would call this already and not yet period that we that we live in, which I'm sure we can press into and explain a little bit more as we go. So is that where, thinking about Jesus' parables of the kingdom, is that where things like the parable of the mustard seed yeah. that starts tiny and becomes big, or the parable of the, the yeast that's hidden in the dough and, and then the dough grows and grows yeah. as the yeast multiplies? Is, is that where those things come in? Yeah, I think so. So it's it's um, so it's there in terms of the overall story, and you get it within the, whole, the the context of the whole New Testament. But it's there in the teaching of Jesus as well, when he's teaching in parables. Um, I think we very often think of parables as nice illustrations, uh, and in a sense, they are. They're good illustrations. They, they they illustrate stuff well. But what parables are primarily doing within the teaching of Jesus is they are very subversive stories. They're taking something that the listeners would have been generally familiar with. And they're, and they're shifting a major detail so that by the time you finish the parable, you suddenly go, oh, I was expecting to hear this story and instead I got a very different story. And uh, the, the parables that you've just suggested there are good examples of that. The, the, the parable of the mustard seed um, 
is a really good suggestion of that. Jesus says the, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, if you're reading in, in Matthew, is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it grows uh, to become, a, well, a kind of a large bush, really. And all of the, the birds of the air make their nests in it. Now, in, on, on one level, that sounds like a nice illustration about the fact that the, the kingdom of God grows little by little. Uh, that in itself would have probably been quite surprising for um, for Jesus's hearers. But Jesus is actually drawing on a passage from Ezekiel. I can't quite remember off the top of my head which chapter it is, um, where there's a prophecy uh, where Israel is represented as, as a cedar, actually, or at least the kings of, of Israel are represented as cedars. Um, massive massive trees and the birds of the air which in the context of Ezekiel represent the nations come and make their their nests within it and so Jesus is not only subverting this understanding that the kingdom of God is just going to come and bam everything's going to change suddenly he's also subverting or um slightly slightly transforming this idea that the kingdom of God is going to look like Israel right now being this massive kingdom that has dominion over everything and the nation's kind of being these little um these little birds he's he's using the, the idea of a mustard seed and a mustard bush where you think there's a big difference between a mustard bush and a cedar and so jesus is using these stories that they would have been familiar with not in order to contradict them and i think that's that's where we have to be careful we, we have to be, be careful we don't go down the road of saying oh the jews of the time expected a military leader who would defeat all of their enemies and jesus told them they were completely wrong you think no no jesus jesus affirms that there's a day coming where that military mighty conquering leader will emerge out of the heavens and defeat all of his enemies so he's not he's not denying the promises of the old testament but he is reshaping them and helping his hearers understand the process towards getting there is going to look very different to what you imagined. It's not going to look like the kingdom, bam, suddenly coming in, Jesus becomes king and everyone's, all enemies of God are defeated. It's going to look like a much more gradual process. Um, and it might in the process involve, um, involve a bit of pride, maybe even ethnic pride within Israel being stamped down a little in the, in the process. So would the expectation have been um, the way that Israel's king begins to rule over the whole world is that Israel's king is, you know, has maybe very militarily and, and politically successful and extend, you have a strong king over Israel, extends an empire over then all the other countries, and then everyone is serving Israel's king. Yeah. But the way it then actually plays out with Jesus is that he's, he comes and he's, uh, he's installed as the king of Israel, but um the moment he's on the throne in heaven and uh and his his kingdom is extending throughout the world as gentiles are grafted into israel as they submit to jesus yeah um so that's quite a different kind of way of getting to the same end result yes it is and i think what what jesus does is um he so like i said he's not contradicting what the old testament says but he's he's helping his hearers to realize that there are certain aspects of those old testament prophecies that they have promises that they haven't fully understood and i think uh, one of the uh, one of the typical old testament prophecies that we now think of like oh yeah of course that's talking about jesus but that at the time people wouldn't have thought of talking about him would be um isaiah 53 
the power of the prophecy of the suffering servant. What's interesting is that comes straight off the back of um, obviously Isaiah 52, because <laughs> that's the chapter just before. But in Isaiah 52, it's one of the most um, astounding prophe- prophecies of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, and it's it's um, it's using really dramatic wonderful language of the idea of um, Jerusalem being rebuilt Jerusalem being restored uh, the image of um, watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem hearing a messenger proclaiming your God reigns Um, and so there's this there's this amazing picture of restoration and, and of the kingdom of God coming and so at the end of Isaiah 52 you're reading stuff like all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God the Lord has bared his arm before the eyes of all of the nations and you're thinking this is going to be cataclysmic and then immediately after we get this prophecy of the suffering servant and you get this moment where you think wow that's not what I would have expected it to look like it looks like uh, someone that was despised and rejected being crushed by God um and then the end of Isaiah 53 climaxes with what we now know as, well, resurrection and people being brought into the family of God. And so it's almost like Jesus is helping his hearers to understand that within the Old Testament itself, there was this understanding that the reign and the rule of God coming would involve the suffering of a, of a servant beforehand. Um, and so I think, yeah, I, th- I think that's that's absolutely right. Jesus is is reshaping the way that his his people think about the kingdom of God, that it, it isn't that cataclysmic moment breaking in, but actually there is something that is needed in the middle. And actually that, that something that is needed is Israel itself is suffering from a major problem that is bigger than the fact that they're under Roman occupation. It's the fact that they themselves have come under the, the curse of disobedience to the law, the curse of disobedience to God. And as a result, something is needed in order to get to the point where you can have that um that like full-on kingdom of god over over all of the nations and that's something that jesus seems to be doing when he's pointing his disciples back to the old testament he's helping them understand the scriptures said that the the christ the messiah had to suffer before entering his glory um and in all fairness to in all fairness to jewish readers of the time it's not on the surface of it it's not what you would have expected but jesus is helping them understand it was always there but now you've seen it play out in reality. I needed to suffer before entering into my glory. And there's a sense in which that in-between moment still continues, like you said, in, in the history of the church. Jesus has now been through his suffering into glory. He's reigning and ruling. But the church itself is still in the process of proclaiming the good news of Jesus, proclaiming that he's king. But we don't yet see Jesus manifest as king all the way across the whole world and there is this idea of something that we may have thought would be instantaneous actually being a process but that will reach reach its climax one day and we're in the middle of that process and speaking of sort of the process and the timeline um i just wonder whether i could get you to talk about the way jesus predicts like a coming um uh coming moment of judgment when he's talking about the kingdom um with if we flick open our bibles and read that we probably assume oh he's talking about the second coming but not everyone would read it that way no you're right and this is to go this is to go into a a really controversial road but um so there are there are a number of so well well known well 
well-known parables. So the parable of the, the the sheep and the goats, which I alluded to earlier. The parable of the um, the the wise and the foolish vir foolish virgins. So very often teaching that we would associate with the second coming. Um, and those parables are often part of what's called, sometimes called the eschatological discourse, where Jesus basically sits on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and um, uses a lot of language that sounds that is very full on, like looks like end of the world kind of language, like the stars of the heavens will fall and the, and the, um, the, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And then you will see the sign of the son of man um, coming on the clouds with great power and great might. And, um, more recently, a number of scholars have looked at that and have started and kind of asked the question, is Jesus talking about his second coming in those moments or is he using Old Testament imagery to refer to a moment of his own vindication and of judgment upon unbelieving Israel? Um, and so one of one of the guys who um, he's a he he's one of the good he's one of the good guys in, in, in this whether or not we agree with him or not. But a guy called Tom Wright would um, would argue that actually when Jesus is using that kind of language, uh, he's not actually talking about his second coming at all. He's actually talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so someone like Tom Wright would very much read a lot of the language that Jesus uses of um, the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And would read that not as a reference to the second coming, but as a reference to uh, 70 AD, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, was destroyed the Jewish temple. And um, Tom Wright and others would say, well, Jesus is predicting that moment. And he's claiming that in that moment, he is vindicated as the son of man. In other words, he has been rejected by the majority of Israel. And as a result of that rejection, judgment is going to come upon Jerusalem and come upon the uh, the historical temple. And that in the moment that that happens, Jesus is being vindicated as, um, well, partly a true prophet, but is being vindicated as the true king of Israel. Um, now, I, I think that's probably partly right. I, I kind of, too, I think initially when I came across that idea, I thought, oh, yes, this is genius. This, this is absolutely right. And then I, uh, But the more I look at it, the more I think I'm, I'm not convinced that you can end up reading Matthew, Mark and Luke and come to the conclusion that Jesus is never referring to his second coming. And so I think when I'm reading it, um, I would want to acknowledge, yes, Jesus is in part talking about the destruction of the temple. And um, I think that's helpful for us to know, because I think for most of us, the idea of the destruction of the temple is like, well, that happened in 70 AD. What on earth has that got to do with, with me? And so we can almost dismiss it and not realise how cataclysmic a moment that was. And so I think that Jesus does predict that, that there's a sense of judgment within history itself um, on Jerusalem for having rejected the Messiah. But I do think there are some parables and some bits of teaching within that that I, I struggle to reconcile with purely 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. And so I, I would read parables like um, the sheep and the goats. And I think that even within um, the Jewish language of the day, that was very much the kind of language that would be used to refer to final judgment. Um, and so I think to, to say that Jesus never really spoke of final judgment and, and so on, or of his second coming, I'm not sure is completely right. Nonetheless, it's helpful to remember that Jesus is speaking to a specific people at a specific time and is also making predictions about things that happened within within AD history, not just long-term distant stuff. 
Um, so, and that helps us to root Jesus in in history. Uh, so we mustn't forget Jesus is coming as Israel's king and is proclaiming that to Israel and is calling them to repent and to follow him. Um, and within history itself, there was a moment of temporary, at least, judgment that came upon the nation for not having acknowledged the, their king's return. Yeah. And in that respect, it's quite helpful to see that Jesus is functioning in the in the mould of, of all the Old Testament prophets yeah. who, who come with a message calling the people of Israel to repentance and threatening uh, a judgment if they don't. I mean, it's just what, you know, Isaiah does or yeah. whoever. Uh, and to just see Jesus in that context helps you, I think, get another lens, another window on what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and so why why would... Just to bring us back to our, our main topic, just help us understand why would the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans be associated with um, the kingdom of God? Mm. So I think part, part of the reason would be that there's a there's a moment of um, th- there's a moment of judgment on Israel for the fact that they have rejected their king. And I think that that's a that that's a key part of it um and i think that 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 in itself i think is a is is a big is a big deal i think you see in the old testament when um there, there are moments where um very often it's if, if where individuals end up rejecting god's rightful king and down the line there ends up being judgment that comes on them as a result and so i think that that that's that's part of it so i think it's it's partly uh, we we use the language of vindication that jesus has come as a prophet to israel he has come as and has proclaimed himself as their king and has said repent and turn um so that and he, he he's appealing to them and i think we very often read those passages such as unless you repent um the same things will happen to you and we read those primarily as end time judgment and i think that's not wrong necessarily to to interpret it partly that way but i think jesus is also appealing within his own generation so you you need to repent you need to turn to me you need to repent of having turned away from god you need to acknowledge me as king um otherwise judgment's coming judgment is going to come upon you and so i think it's significant in terms of the kingdom of god because it's a moment where um Jesus is vindicated in having pronounced judgment upon Israel. He's saying, if you don't turn, if you don't repent, worse things will happen to you. And that that's what happened within within history. Um, and so in a sense, the destruction of Jerusalem um, vindicates Jesus as a prophet and vindicates Jesus as a king because he has predicted this is going to happen within my lifetime. Um, and it did. And so I think that's that that's going to be part of why it's it's associated with um with with the kingdom of god um because it's also partly the kingdom of god involves judgments and there's also there's obviously a final judgment but the, there is a biblical concept of moments of judgment that are brought upon people within within history itself and i'd say the the destruction of jerusalem would have been one of those key moments where there's a there's a a, a key rejection that has happened from god's people towards the messiah and um God is demonstrating this. This is my King, and you've rejected Him by bringing to pass what He had prophesied. Mm. And I guess having that all that stuff in mind is just helpful if we're reading through the Gospels and we come across one of those moments where Jesus makes a prediction and says, "This will happen within a generation." If if your first thought is He's talking about the second coming, you're then scratching your head and you're like, yeah. "Did He get it wrong?" Or you know what's going on there? Or yeah. there's various options. 
but another option that we've got to have on the table um, in terms of interpreting that is that actually, no, just like the other prophets, he's talking uh, in the first instance about a judgment that was coming within a generation, yeah. um, even if it at the same time points to, to something beyond it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps if we could just change direction a little bit and talk about something else that, again, might be a bit controversial, but just to kind of put it on the table, um, I'd love us to talk about the kind of language that um, Jesus uses about the kingdom. Because um, I think when you look at the language, it can get you thinking, it get you thinking in interesting ways about what we mean by it. So you sometimes hear people talking about um, uh, building the kingdom of God or bringing the kingdom of God or extending the kingdom of God. And I guess what they're talking about there is um, uh, perhaps evangelism and church planting, um, or perhaps they're talking about uh, social action or or influencing the society around us for good with with good godly principles and values but i think it's interesting that that's not the way that jesus talks about the kingdom in the synoptic gospels so let me just throw some throw some phrases at you that i think that jesus does use in the synoptics and just get you to reflect on on what that tells us about how we think about the kingdom how we relate to the kingdom so Jesus talks about the fact that the kingdom comes, um, that people enter the kingdom or are in the kingdom. He talks about people receiving the kingdom. He talks about people possessing the kingdom. Um, you don't get the impression that people create it or extend it or build it. So have, have we got something wrong there? What's what's going on? Yeah. So I think langu language is important. And I think language, uh, the language that we use um subconsciously makes a difference to the way that we think and so I, I i i'm sometimes a bit picky about the kind of language that i'll use or the language i encourage using and um part of that is just i'm a bit picky um i'm like that i'm that i think in that kind of way but part of it is i think it does shape the way that we think um now i think a lot of phrases such as uh, bringing the kingdom or advancing the kingdom and so on i think the the intention behind that i think is 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 very biblical uh, in the sense that people would say, well, yeah, through evangelism, we're bringing the kingdom. And so there's a sense in which I'd absolutely agree with the intention. Um, and the, I'm not even sure whether it's necessarily wrong in, in that sense. But it is interesting that it, you're right. It's not it's not the kind of phrases that are used when Jesus speaks about the kingdom. Um, and we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Um, and I think so if we if, if we're just thinking about evangelism, for, for example, um, it doesn't tend, yeah, the, the New Testament, Jesus doesn't tend to speak in terms of the church expanding the kingdom. Um, it would, he would tend to use language such as proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom or proclaiming the good news of the kingdom or, or speak, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Um, and the, there's almost a sense in which um, the the kingdom of God ultimately is going to be it's going to be a reference to God reigning and ruling in Christ over a particular a particular people within a particular area well within the whole of creation um, and so there's a sense that he he's the one Jesus is the one who's king Jesus is the one who in that sense Jesus is the one who's extending the kingdom if you want to use that phrase um, but that doesn't mean that when we proclaim the gospel the kingdom isn't growing if you want to use that kind of that kind of word it's just that the emphasis doesn't seem to be on the church 
actively doing something that changes the kingdom it seems to be the emphasis seems to be on the church proclaiming jesus the church preaching the good news of the kingdom and that in the process the dominion or the at least the the obvious uh, acknowledged dominion of jesus grows and increases as that happens and so i think i'd be I'd, I'd be hesitant to say that certain of those expressions are pure are, are wrong pure and simple i think some of them are really confusing because we're just saying i'm not even sure what that actually means um so I, but i think by and large i wouldn't i wouldn't think those expressions are wrong but i think the language we use does shape the way that we think and i think um it's so it's it's often good to err with thinking right what's the, what is the way the bible tends to speak of it and i think the emphasis in the bible seems to be the church proclaims and jesus is the one who adva- advances obviously it doesn't use the word advance but jesus is the one it's jesus's reign is expanded jesus's reign is acknowledged and and grows um so i think that would be the bottom line is yeah you're right jesus doesn't use that kind of language and so we if we're going to be using a phrase that isn't biblical in the sense that it doesn't appear in the bible we need to be thinking can we use a phrase that at the very least communicates the same kind of idea and i think some of those phrases can communicate it but i think there's a little bit of muddying of the waters sometimes um which means we might be on safer ground by talking about proclaiming the good news rather than the idea of advancing or expanding the kingdom mm. and what about the and what about the idea of um kingdom you sometimes hear kingdom being talked of as a different kind of activity to church stuff so there's kind of church things which is like preaching and small groups and alpha courses and there's kingdom things which is like um mercy ministries or cultural influence or whatever um what do you make of that yeah it's interesting that different different church traditions have got um, kind of slightly different emphases on what counts as kingdom work, so to speak. I'm sure we, we might touch on a little bit more of that. But I think, yeah, his, historically, um, in a lot of perhaps perhaps a lot of more traditional churches than, than ours, I think the, the language of kingdom can often be associated primarily with um, social action. I think that's 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 one of the big areas, um, perhaps a little bit more in um in churches of the same kind of kind as ours that the word kingdom can often be associated with the idea of cultural transformation or the idea that um, christians are making a difference within the different spheres of of life that they walk in um and i think i think those those are all good things so i think before saying anything about the fact that i don't think that's a valid use of the word kingdom i think those are all things that the bible calls us to do um the Bible calls us to do good to all people, especially those of the household of God. And so I think within that, you you have got a you've got a mandate for Christians doing good to people, for um, for living righteously in the midst of their jobs, for serving the poor. We, in fact, we're explicitly told to 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 care for the poor amongst us, and but also we're told do good to all people. So it's that social action and so on. I think is is central to what we do. Um, but where I would want to be careful with the use of kingdom is the kingdom of God means that the the reign of Jesus ultimately. It's the it's it's the idea of Jesus reigning and ruling as king. So I would want to make sure that if if we're talking about the idea of kingdom activity, um that, that means people coming to acknowledge Jesus as king. And so I'm thinking if if what we're doing is um, bringing cultural transformation within a particular area of society, that's wonderful. That could be wonderful work. 
But if it doesn't lead to Jesus being acknowledged as king, I would be hesitant to call it kingdom work. It might be um, doing good to all people. It might be social action and caring for the poor, um, all of which we are called to do. But I think the word kingdom, I would want to use that in the context where people are acknowledging Jesus is king. Um, and so I think that's, yeah, that, that might be why I might push back against using the language of kingdom specifically to refer to that. Um, and especially kind of pitting kingdom and church against each other. I, I just don't think that's a, 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 biblical, a, a biblical idea. I think the, the church is the people of God. And so what, when the kingdom has fully come, what is the people over which Jesus is going to be reigning and ruling? Well, it's going to be the church. And so I think you can't really, uh, I mean, you can separate the two in the sense that the, the the dominion of Jesus extends to more than reigning over the church. But I don't think you can put them in two nice separate camps with no overlap. And I think that that's potentially a dangerous and misleading thing to do. Hmm. I wonder whether it sort of happens because if you take the example of, say, a headmistress who's a Christian who is leading her school in a way that, um, uh, and, and she's wanting to lead the school in a way that will be good for people and will please God. She's going to take the principles of um, life in the kingdom and apply them in her school context. So, so she's going to think, oh, I'm taking kingdom principles. And I guess what you're saying is that's exactly what she should be doing. Um, but you wouldn't describe that as extending the kingdom because the kingdom is a king with people submitting to him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so. I I, I wouldn't be saying for a moment she shouldn't be doing. It. I think we are called to, uh, we're called to live as followers of Jesus wherever we go. And so you would you would want people in that particular position to be living worshipfully for Jesus, which will mean um, if they're if if. If, if this person's a headmistress, that would mean leading in a way that is just, leading in a way that is gentle, leading in a way that where you're caring for those who are uh, less cared for by the world and so on. So absolutely, we are. there's a mandate, there's a command on us to live in that way. Um, I think what I'd have hesitancy about is um, the idea that sometimes when people use the, the, the phrase doing kingdom work, it almost carries with it the idea that part of the core mission of the church is to bring cultural transformation as an end in itself. And I'm thinking, I don't see that in the New Testament. I'm, th I'm thinking that's a good thing. I'm sure it's a byproduct of the church being on mission. But I think the main mandate is proclaiming Jesus is king and he is extending mercy to anyone who will come to him and you need to repent and turn to follow him and receive his grace. Um, that's what I see as the mandate that's given to the church um, in terms of what their actual mission is as such. Um, and so what I want to do is not confuse the general call that all Christians have, which is to live out the values of what it means to be a follower of Jesus anywhere you go. I wouldn't want to confuse that um that and the cultural transformation that it brings as if that's an end in itself um the the mission we have is to proclaim jesus as king and to see him acknowledged as king um and we are called to live lives of submission to king jesus whatever we're doing but that doesn't mean that cultural transformation is a kind of end in itself and i think sometimes that's the way that the the, the expression of kingdom can be used sometimes what we're aiming for what we're wanting to see is people coming to acknowledge jesus as king um and in the process whether or not they do that we are going to show kindness and do good to all people and we're going to look to um see culture transformed in a in a good way but we're not going to make that our primary aim we're going to we're going to 
do that do that when it's appropriate but we're not going to make that the aim the aim is proclaiming jesus and seeing him acknowledged as lord yeah yeah i i think that is a good reflection of what the new testament calls us to um to to sort of frame it in those sorts of ways um i guess at city church we talk about being a family of disciples on mission and i find it helpful to put that kind of um doing good to all people kind of stuff in the discipleship category in my head that's what i do because i'm a disciple of jesus um it's not uh it's not sort of the central plank of the mission of god which is to bring people to repentance and submission to king jesus yeah um yeah which is how they how they enter the kingdom how they receive the kingdom and uh, and so to sort of circle right back around the way that the way that Israel's king is going to be king over all the nations of the world is not by militarily or politically conquering them. It's going to be by people from every nation of the world choosing to submit to Israel's king, being grafted in to Israel in the process. And um, uh, and then the great day coming when, when he's revealed and those who've not chosen to submit are excluded and everyone is submitting to God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, bring it on. Come Lord Jesus. Amen. Absolutely. <laughs> Dan, it's been great to, to mine your thoughts on this. You have uh, got so much tucked away in your head and uh, articulate it really well. So thanks for serving us. Very welcome. It's a pleasure. Um, if if he's throwing questions for anyone listening, then just drop me an email. Um, don't want to leave anyone confused or um, uh, or... Uh, violently disagreeing and not knowing what to do with it. Just send an email, let's have a chat. And um, uh, if nothing else, I hope that what we've been able to do is kind of give give us a framework for when we're reading our Bibles uh, and we're, we're in the Gospels and Jesus is talking about the kingdom, we've got a bit of an idea, why is he using that word and what does it mean? Um, so on that note, uh, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me. God bless guys, see you soon. Thank you.